Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The author of Hebrews has been telling us about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. None of the priests of Israel could compare with the greatness of Christ. They could not compare because verse 14, if you remember from last week, it had told us that Christ has passed through the heavens, meaning we have a high priest that represents us before God the Father. He is seated in the heavenly sanctuary, seated at the right hand of the Father, and has stayed there. There is every reason to take confidence in our high priest. There is every reason to hold on to our faith. It is Jesus, the Son, which tells us of his humanity, but not just any Son, the Son of God. Why? Because he is God, one person with two natures. He understands both the position of man and the purpose of God. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. Pastor Phil Lamaster of Grace in Kentucky said it was nearing Christmas and he had received a phone call from a man who needed to talk. Phil met him at his church office where he told his story. See, a decade before, he killed his wife in a fit of anger. And then he was convicted of manslaughter and spent several years in prison. And their daughter had to be taken out of the home and he hadn't seen her since. And it was December, and it's an emotional time of year for many, many people. And his heart ached, his heart was troubled, and tears were streaming down from his face as, as he said, I, I could pass my daughter on the streets of this city and not even know who she is. But Phil said that what he remembered most about their counseling session was that the man had said at first when he walked into his office, he said with a lot of drama and waving his arms in the air, he said, now preacher, let's just leave this Jesus out of this, okay? Well, later Phil reflected and he says, that's the whole problem. He left Jesus out. But he's not the only one to do this, is he? Uh-uh. Something disturbing is happening in the United States of America right now. It's actually happening to all sorts of Americans, middle-aged white Americans. Princeton revealed a study about this that shows the mortality rate for middle-aged white Americans has risen about half a percent every single year since 1999. Meaning from 1999 through the study went through 2013, this meant an additional one half million people have died. But even more disturbing is the cause of death. It's not disease, it's not sickness, it is suicide, alcohol, and drugs. Because here's what the study concluded. As the manufacturing jobs have left, as the construction jobs have left, and they've dried up in our country, and as the wages have stagnated and flattened, blue-collar workers are having a tough time, and they're turning to alcohol, and they're turning to opiates. 
And to put it bluntly, they said this in the study, middle-aged white Americans are dying, dying of despair. Because this generation has expected to lead better lives than their parents. We are talking about people who were raised to believe in the American dream and are coping badly with its failure to come true. And I would add one thing to these words. They've left out Jesus. They have left out his purpose. They have left out his plan for their lives. Because apart from him, there are no solutions to our problems. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot find our purpose for living. Be thankful. Be so thankful this morning we have a great high priest standing ready to give us the grace and the mercy that we need. We continue our study in verse 15. And the author says this. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does it mean that our high priest can sympathize with us? That's kind of a peculiar statement, isn't it? It means to suffer with. It is to express the feeling of the one who is suffering. In all points tempted means that Jesus experienced every degree of temptation, but he never, ever sinned. 1 John 2.16, many of you know this verse. 1 John 2.16, it teaches us that there are three ways that we can be tested in our life. There is the lust of the flesh, there is the lust of the eyes, and there is the pride of life. You see, when Jesus was hungry, Satan suggested to him that Jesus turn the stones into bread. This was the lust of the flesh. When Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world, this was an appeal to the lust of the eyes. And when Satan wanted him to demonstrate his confidence in God by leaping from the pinnacle of the temple, this was an appeal to the pride of life. His temptations did not come from a sin nature, but he suffered temptation even stronger than what you and I face. Let's think of it this way. Let's think of this. Think of a boulder on the shores of the ocean. It's huge, and it doesn't move. It just sits there. The waves can crash against it, but it doesn't move. Not like the little stones that wash away by the crashing of the waves. So the boulder actually stands up and experiences the full force of every single wave that hits it. Jesus was never going to yield. But because he did not move, he experienced the full force of the temptations thrown against him. Satan gave it his all. Satan gave everything he had. Like a prize fighter who goes the full number of the rounds, Jesus was not knocked down. He was not knocked out, but he endured more than the person who just throws in the towel before the end of the fight. Christ bore a greater weight of testing than any man has known. He knows what temptation is, and he is able to identify with us when we are tempted. You know, I was reading about the story of some years ago, a man was visiting a gold mine in South Africa, and he was shown the different stages where the gold is actually refined. And it would be put into the crucible and heated into a molten state, and then the dross, the top scum, was kind of skimmed away. And at last, they finally had pure gold. 
But you see, then there was one more step. Before it could be stamped with the official seal, it had to be inspected one final time. And again, it was heated to the melting point. And so the man asked, why? What was the point of all that? What was the point since it had already been refined? And he was told this. He said that it wasn't being melted to see if it had any impurities left that needed to be removed. It was being melted again to demonstrate, to show that the gold was pure. I want you to understand this, Christians. The temptations of Jesus were not intended to see if he could sin. It was never in question. His temptations were simply to demonstrate that he was without sin, to show all mankind that he was pure. And so that in all things, our Redeemer and our great high priest could identify with us, with you and me. Consider the love and the mercy of our God. Now with verse 16, what I want you to consider here is what change this was for the Hebrew believers, the Hebrew Christians that were reading this text. You see, in the Old Testament, the people were warned that they could not get close to God. We talked about that in Sunday school. You could not get close to God because otherwise you would die. But the veil, it's been torn. The death of Christ has provided access to God. The way that God was worshipped changed. And so now we read that believers are actually encouraged to boldly draw near to the throne of His grace. Recognize the amazing privilege you have before God. No longer is it just the high priest of Israel that goes once a year into the holiest place. In the Old Testament, the high priest of Israel, do you remember everything they would wear? They would wear a golden breastplate, and on it were inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, it was as if he brought the whole nation with him to atone for their sin. And the priest would wear a head covering, and on it was a crown of pure gold on top, and inscribed on the crown were the words, Holy to Yahweh. The high priest had to be free of all physical defects. He had to be a member of the tribe of Levi. In other words, priests were born. They were not made, but they were held to a standard of holiness. A priest in the Old Testament who committed adultery was killed on the spot. In other words, in order to enter the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur to atone for the sins of the people, a priest had to be holy. You see, we have that in Jesus Christ, don't we? Come boldly. It means with confidence. Believers should approach God in prayer with confidence because this is a throne of grace, a place where grace reigns. And our high priest, he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. You see, Jesus stands ready to help us. He understands us. He shows us mercy because he doesn't give us what we deserve. A throne of grace. A, a place of undeserved help given to every one of his believers. It is not that we approach with arrogance. May it never be that we approach with arrogance, but confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Confidence based on the understanding that God alone has all the grace that you and I both need. Verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices 
for sins. See, the author is now taking us down the path of showing what it means to be a high priest. And is showing us in the text that our Redeemer, our ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, that he is a better priest here than any mere man could ever be. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements of being a high priest. So to qualify to be a high priest of Israel, you had to be a man. You had to be a man. Angels, here's the intent, did not qualify. No angel can function as a priest for man. It's simply not going to work. This is one of the reasons for the incarnation of Christ. His humanity qualifies him. A high priest also had to stand between God and the people as their representative before him and present, what does the text say? Gifts or offerings and sacrifices for sins. It's a reference, actually, to the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest stood in the most holy place to intercede for his people. But what else is required of a high priest? Well, pick it up with verse 2, if you would. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. A high priest was to be compassionate because he knew his own sin. He knew his own weakness. Meaning it wasn't just enough for a high priest of Israel to go through the motions. It came down to the motives. It came down to the counsels of the heart. There was a time and place to deal with people who were ignorant of God's truth. People who were going astray. But he was to deal with them gently, with compassion, knowing his own sin and his own need of a sacrifice for sin. You see, the Old Testament drew a sharp distinction between the person who knew the Word of God and chose to ignore it deliberately, and the person who just sinned because they were just simply ignorant of God's Word. There is a difference in the Word of God. This is what is being described for us here. The person who just did not know the Word, the high priest, was to be gentle with them. Now look at the next qualification with me in verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, we could absolutely chase a rabbit trail here that someday I would love to chase about how this applies to the men called by God to lead his people today. But I don't want to go down that road for very long. I don't want to miss the intent of the text and how this fits regarding our Savior. The high priest had to be appointed by God. Why? Because he represented men before a holy God. And he had to represent God before men. God had no obligation to accept the ministry of men who were not appointed by him. Hear me on that. That applies today. I think that same thing is going on today. Men attempting to serve God in roles that they have not been called to. God is not under any obligation to accept their ministry. Don't make God smaller than he is in your mind. We are talking about the creator. We are talking about the sovereign and perfect holy God instructing his people in his word how to worship. God appointed who he would accept as his representatives for the nation of Israel. 
Aaron was appointed by God himself to the position of priest. Notice from Exodus 28. It says, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. You see, we see the same pattern in the men that followed after. And in case you don't think this was a serious matter, number 16 tells us that those who actually dared with the audacity of pride to challenge Aaron's call are those who just went out and appointed themselves as priests. What happened to them? They were put to death by a holy and righteous God. But this system, it started to all fall apart when Israel lost its sovereignty in the Babylonian captivity. Then the high priest just became a political appointment. But the writer of Hebrews is looking back to how it was at first, to how it should have been. Remember the disaster that came when men like Korah, Saul, and Uzziah attempted to perform the functions of the high priest without the divine authority given to them. And so what is the writer doing here? He isn't focused on the dignity of the office. He wasn't focused on the honor that came from serving as high priest. But instead, he was focused on the great humility. The humility. Boy, I wish we saw that today. The humility of the high priest who stood in the privileged position only by the appointment of God. But by the first century, the priests, they were just being picked by the whim of men by rulers, by secular rulers, being from the line of Aaron and no longer mattered, being in the will of God no longer mattered. It was all about politics, just like it is today. The priests were corrupt, it was a disgrace, and it led the nation down a path of spiritual ruin. And I think any Hebrew believer in Christ reading this epistle here from the Hebrews it would have longed for the type of priest that, that was just being described in God's word. But in his sovereignty... In his sovereignty, God knew that this would all one day change. He would send his son to be the perfect high priest, the author and finisher of our faith. In April of 2001, it was in the middle of the Israeli-Arab conflict, and a motorcade that was carrying the security service chief of Gaza came under bullet fire from Israeli troops. And the security official was terrified, so he called Yasser Arafat from his car for help. Well, then Arafat, he then called the U.S. ambassador, who then called the U.S. Secretary of State, Colin Powell. Colin Powell then phoned Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister, who ordered that the shooting would stop on the spot immediately. And it did. It stopped just like that, just from a couple phone calls, because the connections he had eventually saved his life. You know what the writer of Hebrews is telling us? He's telling us that we have a divine connection that is far better than anything that we can make a difference in this world. God the Father appointed his son, Jesus the Christ, to become our high priest. Watch this in our next two verses. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the writer is now starting to tell us 
something here. He's telling us that Christ met all the requirements of being our high priest. Christ didn't act alone in becoming our high priest. This came from the Father. And he quotes at first Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that tells us in the future the Son of God will rule over the nations. He will be the king when he takes up that Davidic throne. Now begotten here it's tempting to think this is about the Incarnation, isn't it? It's tempting, but it's actually not. You see, the context of Psalm 2 is about God the Son taking the Davidic throne to rule the nations. But the writer actually wanted to have a second witness from Scripture. And so he quoted from Psalm 110, verse 4, another messianic psalm. To make it known that there was no question that the Son has been appointed to the office of high priest. That after the resurrection of Christ, when he ascended, it sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is when the Son was appointed by the Father to the role of high priest. But notice this second quotation from Psalm 110. It highlights that the priesthood of Christ is what? Is it just for a few years? No, of course not. It's eternal. It is forever. Jesus will be the mediator between God and man forever. You see, the writer is telling us that he is our high priest now. And he will be our king. He is bringing both of these concepts together according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you find the story of Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. If you haven't read it in a while, I'd like you to go home this afternoon and read it. It's a fascinating story. He was both, you remember, of course, a king and a priest. And the Bible tells us that he was the king of Salem. Salem was probably Jerusalem. And he was a priest of the Most High God. Now most of you remember the story. Abraham had rescued Lot. And we read this in Genesis 14. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Melchizedek blessed the father of the Hebrew people, but how did Abraham respond? He tithed. Even long before the Mosaic Law, Abraham tithed as an act of worship to God. Now, if you were looking at things, according to the Hebrew people, Christ could not become a high priest because he was born into the kingly tribe of Judah, not the priestly tribe of Levi. But the order of Melchizedek came before the priesthood of Aaron, long before, centuries before. And that was part of the message from the Psalm of David, from Psalm 110, that the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah of Israel would be both a king and priest. And let me just add that the ministry of the Arianic priests ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. But the priesthood of our Savior, the priesthood of our Savior, it goes on forever because he has been raised from the dead and lives on forever in the presence of the Father. Pick it up again with me in verse 7. The text gets really interesting. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
The writer is showing us the humanity of Jesus Christ, and he's showing us that Christ is qualified to represent his people before God. And if you wanted to show the humanity of Christ, boy, this is the place to show it. This is the best place to look. What an incredible scene that had to be in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before our Savior went to the cross. That's the reference here in verse 7, days of his flesh, the time of his life on earth in his mortal body. And when he prayed, because the weight of all that lay before him produced such strong cries and tears to the Father, all of our sin, think about this, all of our sin was about to be placed on this sinless man. It was the emotional stress at this point of knowing everything he was about to suffer. And Luke 22:44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Catch that raw emotion of the scene. Recognize the Savior's love for you. And notice what Christ did. He went boldly to the throne of grace in order that he may obtain mercy and find grace in his time of need. You see, when Jesus faced his darkest hour, he lived out the same help that is being offered to us as believers. Do you recognize how great our God is? He understands your weakness. He understands your temptations and what you are going through. Even at the most difficult crossroads he could face, he turned to the Father and he submitted to his will. And then he trusted and he depended on the Father for the grace to see him through. But what did Christ pray for? That's the $50 million question. What did Christ pray for? The Bible says that he had godly fear. Here's where the Bible, I think, is taking us. And hear me on this, because this goes deep. We tend to focus on the physical death of Christ, but I don't think that's what's being discussed. I think his concern was about his spiritual death. Jesus himself stated in John 10 that he had the power to take up his life. He had the power to rise from the dead. So I don't think he was just concerned about the resurrection here in Hebrews. All the way back in Genesis 2, we read the penalty for sin is death. Separation of the sinner from God. Spiritual death. Physical death is really only because of spiritual death. But if Jesus Christ is going to satisfy the demands of a holy, righteous God, if he's going to satisfy God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice to provide salvation for people who are dead, he would have to experience the same death that separated them from God. He must enter into spiritual death. And this was actually predicted way back in Psalm 22, which records that the Messiah would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Now, this is a mystery. I'm going to tell you this. This is a mystery that is deeper than any human mind can actually comprehend. How could God the Father and God the Son, who are one, be separated from one another? And yet, and yet, Christ realized that such separation was involved in providing salvation for sinners. Only that kind of 
separation or spiritual death, if you will, could satisfy the demands of a holy and just God. And so I'm telling you that Christ could not have been praying that he would just be spared from it because it had to happen. The penalty for sin is eternal separation from God. And so Christ had to face it for us. Do you remember what he prayed in the garden? He told the father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. See, this is the love of the Son for us. This is the example he set of obedience. And so I can't help but wonder if Christ may have been praying that he would be brought out of the spiritual death that he was about to enter to be restored to fellowship with the Father. This seems to be what the Son was actually praying to the Father in John 17 when he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Separation from the Father. Separation. It makes me wonder if how many of our problems would disappear if we lived with this attitude, if we could instantly respond to God every time we face something in our lives with the words, not my will, but yours. You see, this type of thinking runs in the other direction from our pride that every single person in this room is completely filled with. And so often we struggle for days we struggle for days and weeks and maybe longer with all the possibilities of what God just might do in our lives before we finally reach a point of submission to him. But we can follow the example of Christ. We can know that there is no more secure position for the believer than the surrender to the will of God. Trusting him to do what he has promised, to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 7. This prayer, it was heard. Meaning that the Father granted the prayer of the Son. It, he was brought out of the realm of physical death. He was brought out of the realm of spiritual separation or death from the Father, which is why he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And be careful in verse 8 to understand what is being said. Jesus would never have given in to sin, but his humanity, it could be tested. And the idea here is not so much that he learned to obey, but he learned all that obedience entails. He went through suffering beyond anything that you or I could ever go through. And that is why verse 9 says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Having been perfected just means that the completion of his obedience in the midst of suffering, this prepared him to be our high priest. He carried out the Father's plan. He gained the experience of what it means to suffer as a man. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Author meaning source of our salvation. But remember, the context of Hebrews, and this is where it pays to come every week to church because you learn the context of Hebrews. Read it on your own. Go home and study it. The context has been obedience for the believer in Jesus Christ for the believer in Christ. You see, the grammar and the context of Hebrew dictates that this is not about redemption from sin based on Christ's atonement, not about justification, not about the gospel, but that Christ has perfected his position of high priest by obedience through suffering, and he now stands ready to help you and I, believers in Christ, to obey him. He now stands ready to help his people obey 
so that they can receive the promise of a future inheritance with Christ and reign with him in eternal salvation. This is holding fast, as Hebrews has been talking about to our confession of faith. This is drawing near to God instead of rebelling like the Israelites in the wilderness. We obey through suffering just like our Savior did. See, the writer has shown us that Christ met the second requirement of being a high priest. He took on the form of man, and so God has given him to be our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He suffered so that he could function as our high priest, understanding our weakness and interceding before the Father for us. His obedience to the Father led to Calvary. His own death on the cross, it made him the perfect high priest. He is the one that makes a life of obedience for you and I even possible. A 2009 article in the Chicago Tribune told the story of Betty Tucker, She's a Christian cook who works the night shift at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. She just retired after 50 years, 50 years, long time, many of them, most of them on the night shift. She has seen a steady stream of parents in her job, most of them very, very tired, most of them very, very scared. Just on one night alone, they took a snapshot of what she sees on the average night. And just on one night alone, Miss Betty, as she likes to be called, she served food to a mother whose three-year-old had fallen out of a second-story window. And another mom who was there with her 17-year-old who was battling a rare form of leukemia. And a third mother whose 18-year-old had endured seven hours of brain surgery. Seven hours. These are the types of patients and families that she met every single day, day after day, seeing some of the most heartbreaking cases. Feeding every last one of them as if they were in her own small kitchen on her south side home. She is a woman who likes to smile. And it's hard to imagine how much that smile would mean to a suffering parent, to a suffering child. But it's so much more than just the smile that she gives. You see, Betty says that when she asks the patients how they are doing, she encourages them to not lose hope. And that when the nurses tell her that it's a bad night, it's a difficult night, she comes alongside them, telling them that she will help them to get through the night. And here's what she told the Chicago Tribune. I'm a praying lady. I pray every night for every room and every person in the hospital. I pray for the children. I pray for the families. I pray for the nurses and the doctors. I say every night while I'm driving in on the expressway, oh Lord, I don't know what I'm going to face tonight, but I pray that you will guide me through. I like people like Betty. I like people who pray. Because people like her understand that we have a great high priest in heaven and that we can find his mercy and his grace in our time of need when we come boldly to the throne of his grace. But you see, guys, it's not just enough to know about it, is it? I read recently about a guy named Andrew Bernard, a 19th century Scottish minister. He was one of these guys who was always known for his passion for Jesus Christ. He was one of these guys that was always known for living a holy life before God. And he was teaching at a conference over here in the States in Massachusetts. And D.L. Moody was in charge of the service. And Moody just kind of said to him off the cuff, just kind of winging it. He said, Dr. Bernard, let's get just right down to it right now. These people want to know how you live this victorious life about which you've been preaching. Tell us your experience. 
And Benar, he just hesitated and he said very, very quietly, I, I don't like to speak about myself, but for 50 years I have had access to the throne of grace. And so do we. And so do we. But it's not enough to know about it. We need to draw near to the throne of grace so that we can draw from the throne of grace. You see, when Jesus talks to the Father about you, he knows of what he speaks. He can identify with your temptation. He understands pain. And he even knows what it's like to walk a dark, lonely path in life. If you've ever found yourself alone, forsaken by others, he's been there. You remind him of Gethsemane. Your struggles, your temptations, you remind him of his 40 days in the wilderness. Any pain we suffer, boy, he suffered more, didn't he, at Golgotha? We serve a high priest great enough to understand our weaknesses. His grace doesn't start and stop at redemption. It leads us home to the obedient life, a life lived in his grace. So my encouragement to you this morning is to draw near to the Savior. Know his grace and live a life filled with his love. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.